Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now is Peter Hooper. He's the chief economist at Deutsche Bank. Morning, Peter. Morning, David. I won't ask you the question, should he stay or should he go? But uh, maybe we can talk about the the ramifications of this decision that the Governor Carney's weighing right now. Uh, what are they? Well, this, this is a this is certainly a difficult, critical time for the, the UK economy. Uh, we we're, as as Brexit unfolds, uh, learning uh, how this is going to affect uh, the the economy there and and more globally. Um, the, the economy right now facing the effects of uh, substantial weakening of, of sterling, uh, inflation expectations up sharply uh, at a time when growth has not yet uh, picked up a pace. So difficult decisions, to, difficult decisions ahead. Uh, I think this is an uncertainty about uh, Mr. Carney's future that, that needs to be resolved this week. Uh, and global investors are hoping that he stays on. That he's he's a, a known commodity and someone who uh, is is uh, generally trusted. Uh, but obviously, personal reasons of, of his own for wanting to go on. I, I would look through the politics here. Some new statistics out this morning from the euro area about growth in in the the, the wake of the Brexit vote. Gross domestic product rose 0.3 percent in the three months to September. Inflation rate picking up to 0.5 percent in October. Both of those things in line with with expectations here. What do they tell you about the the health of the the euro economy here after that referendum vote? Well, the 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 economy is uh, so far not taken any kind of a significant hit. Uh, we weren't expecting a, a major negative for the euro economy, but um, uh, more more an, an issue for the UK. Um, at, at this point, it's how how does the how do the negotiations move going forward? Uh, the UK obviously more sensitive to this uh, than the euro area. ECB's goal here, uh, a rate close to just below 2%. What's the, the likelihood we get to that anytime soon? Uh, we're a ways off. <laughs> uh, and uh, our expectation is uh, ECB is going to ex- expand its uh, QE uh, at, at the December meeting. Um, but certainly globally, things beginning to move uh, in a direction that, that, that could be helpful. I mean, uh, you're, you're seeing inflation slowly pick up in the U.S. Uh, n- news out of China has been uh, inflation is a bit, a bit more of the watchword these days. Um, so um, labor markets mm-hmm. labor markets are tightening, uh, and, and it's going to be a slow process, but it's going to take a while. Peter, let's do, let's do a, a granular thing. We have 2.9%, and we're assuming it's inventories and exports. Help me here with if I want to delete inventories from my analysis of GDP. Translate that jargon for us. Okay. Uh, the inventory sales ratio has been, has been relatively high. Uh, it plunged, inventory investment plunged in the second quarter, a big negative on growth. 
Third quarter looks like uh, it, it subtracted something on the order of half percentage point from, from GDP growth. Going, I mean, added something like half a percent as inventory investment went from a substantial negative to a, a moderate plus. Uh, that is, you know, it, what it does going forward is it takes a little bit out of the fourth quarter. We've, we've, we were expecting to see more correction in inventories um, um, over the near term. That's our Deutsche Bank view. Um, we, we now expect to see inventories subtract a few tenths uh, in Q4. Um, so it was a moderate plus, to us a little bit of a surprise, but more in line with consensus expectations. Um, we still have some correction to go going forward. Does it get you to a sustained better GDP, or as you told us an hour ago, that it gets you to sub-2% GDP? Well, I mean, you, you can't have both. Okay, you had 29 uh, half of that was exports and inventories. Uh, the underlying feeling growth trend is something in the one and a half to two percent range. That's wow. uh, what we're consumer and business investment. Consumer just over two percent. Uh, business investment's been very weak. It's been a, a modest negative. That's where we need to really pick up going forward. But let me say that even if we're at just one and a half percent GDP growth. That's enough to give us ongoing improvement in the U.S. labor market because productivity, output per hour, has not grown over the last five years. Uh, for overall GDP, uh, labor productivity, pretty flat. So 1.5% GDP growth means 1.5% labor demand growth, which gives you pretty good in, uh, growth in, in employment. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a tightening labor market. Um, problem here is if productivity is growing that slowly, uh, not just uh, – it, it means very slow potential growth. It means uh, lag, lagging uh, improvement <clears throat> in the U.S. standard of living, uh, and it means pressure on unit labor costs. Yeah, and, and David, not that I want to editorialize here, but it, it touches a little bit on Mr. Trump's comments in different debates on a quote-unquote 1% economy. Yeah. And not particularly 1.0%, but Dr. Hooper's view is Trumpian mm -hmm. in a GDP sense. Squinting. Is that a correct word? I think it is. I saw it in Matt Winkler's <clears throat> piece this morning. We can ask him about the, 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 yes, whether or not that's made it to the dictionary. Uh, squinting through that headline number, Peter, looking looking at household spending, looking at the, the, the state of the consumer, how does he or she look in light of that 2.9% figure? I think overall consumer is doing okay. All right. Household balance sheets have recovered. Uh, average household's net worth to income ratio back to previous uh, near previous highs. Uh, labor market doing well, hiring going okay, and wage inflation beginning to rise. You, you had a 4% increase, nominal income. Uh, it was 2%, a little over 2% uh, real income. Uh, that's enough to support a, you know, a, a moderate growth in consumer spending going forward. And that's, that's more than two-thirds of the economy, so that, that's what's giving you this, uh, this underlying growth in domestic demand somewhere in the at least uh, one and a half, two percent range in the face of some drag on the part of business spending. As I mentioned, we get personal income and personal spending figures this morning. What are you looking for there? I, I think uh, 
my expectation is we're going to be somewhere in the 4% range uh, nominal. Yeah, but this is important because you get spending and income. I get it. And then you take it down and you guys calculate. Did the government calculate it or do you back out what the personal savings rate is? Oh, they give it to us. It's, they give it, it to it, you. It's all part of the You accounts. don't have to like do incense and, <laughs> no. you know, do a Harry Potter Halloween uh, kind of this, thing. And the savings. <laughs> Saving rate has gone from a low of three four percent to five ish uh, to five six. Okay, uh, but but Peter, this is really important here. The paradox of savings, the paradox is upon us with with this great distortion of the fixed income market, isn't it? Well, we, we've we've say, we've been saying that the baby boom generation has not been saving enough for retirement. Uh, savings has picked up, but it picked up primarily because of all the uncertainty around the great financial crisis. Uh, people were mm-hmm. people were shocked by the by the drop in home prices. People were shocked by the huge drop in in uh, asset values. Uh, all this uncertainty says we need to save more. Mm-hmm. Of course, that is. That is one of the drags on consumer spending. The more you save, the less right. you spend. Uh, that was a drag. Right. That was a drag coming out of the out of the uh, out of the recession. Uh, saving right. rate has been wiggling around, but it's been a little more stable. I would say. What are you going as for too. Halloween? <laughs> what am I wearing for Halloween? <laughs> yeah, you going as John Maynard Keynes? <laughs> they were out. Of, they were out of Tom I've King costumes. I've got one of those dual masks. I've got a mask on the front, a mask on the back. Uh-huh. On the front, I'm going as Irving Fisher. Terrific. And my mask <laughs> on the back is the Vice Chairman Stanley Fisher. <laughs> so I'm going as Fisher Fisher <laughs> for Halloween. Think anybody will get it on the Upper East Side? Custom made. Beautiful. What do you think, David? Come on, they get it in Brooklyn. <laughs> Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're going as a kale farmer, right? Yes, of course, of course. Yeah. I'll have my, my backpack laden with Laden with leaves, ca- I'm afraid yeah. to ask with the girl <laughs> offspring how you're going to embarrass them. <laughs> Halloween, be safe today. Let's, let's, I just want to rip up the script. On Jobs Day, this Jobs Day is a big deal. December's Jobs Day is a bigger deal, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, well, this, this Jobs Day is not going to affect what the Fed... Uh, what what the Fed's uh, up up to, it, it it will raise raise the issue of December if if there's an unusually weak number, um, and followed up by another one uh, uh, in <clears throat> in early December. But uh, at, at this point, it, it yeah, you know, it, it it's. Uh, I think we're looking for something in the 150, 175 range on payrolls. Uh, we're looking for maybe a little bit further updrift in average early earnings, and this is right on track for, yeah. for, for Fed moving ahead. And David Girl, December 2nd, December 2-ish would yes. be the day. <laughs> Next time. It's a busy week. We've got an ECB meeting on the heels of that on the 8th, I believe. But, um, yeah, Peter, in a recent note, you said here we see a good chance of a substantial further step down in the unemployment rate. What, what leads you to think that could be the case? Well, the the unemployment rate has leveled off over the last year because labor force participation has picked up uh, pretty significantly. Uh, the, the, there's a secular downtrend in labor force participation because of demographics, largely the retirement mm-hmm. of the baby boom generation, taking about a quarter percentage point out per year. And, and that uh, uh, adds has a substantial impact on, on the unemployment rate. If it, if it backs up as it has, it's enough to level things out. Uh, if if it resumes its downtrend, um, the unemployment rate with with something anything in the neighborhood of 150 on payrolls, the unemployment rate is going to fall uh, somewhere between uh, three quarters of a percentage point and and one percent over the next year. That's how powerful that downtrend is. Um, so 
We think that the labor force participation rate picked up over the last year, not so much because a lot of people were coming back in, but because the rate of uh, people who are unemployed, long-term unemployed, actually leaving the labor force has dropped off. Uh, that says that uh, sometime in the next six months you could see a resumption move toward a, a bit of a downtrend in labor force participation. That says that unemployment um, uh, begins to trend downward again. You, you and your colleagues did a, a masterful job here going through what was discussed at the Boston Fed's uh, economic conference on October the, the 14th. That, of course, where uh, Fed Chair Yellen suggested it, it, it might be wise to or there might be a, a rationale for running the economy at a more high-pressure State. To what degree do you think that's going to be discussed tomorrow and Wednesday uh, around that giant conference table in the Eccles Building in, in, in Washington? And, and do you think there's much agreement there uh, among policymakers that it's something that they, uh, you know, that they could be heading toward? Um, you know, I, I think when, when Janet Yellen raised this in her speech, she was sort of asking the question. And, and her speech was more to uh, raise issues that warrant further macro, uh, research by macroeconomists uh, in the years to come. Um, I'm not expecting a theme to uh, the central theme of the discussion be it's time to run the, the economy at a hotter level uh, in, uh, in a serious way until, until, you know, next year, if indeed the unemployment rate starts, starts declining significantly, this becomes an issue for Fed discussion. <clears throat> so far, however, we're yeah. not there. Dr. Mackey, Dean Mackey, ex-Barclays, now at 0.72 with Steve Cohen, has said for quarters the migration here is to 4.0% unemployment. Can I make some news this morning? Does a major house <laughs> like Peter Hooper agree with Dr. Mackey? Okay. Our, our house call is for unemployment getting down into the mid-fours over the next year. But I, I want to make I, some I, news. I, I, okay. <laughs> All right. You, okay. It's Halloween. You want to risk? Uh, there I've is, got my Fisher Fisher there, there is, Certainly. I will tell you it's pure arithmetic that if Agreed. the— Okay, yeah. it's pure arithmetic that if the labor force participation rate resumes its downtrend, secular downtrend, okay, if the economy continues to grow at 2% and productivity hasn't picked up, we'll be below 4% uh, by the end of next year. Let's leave it there. Peter there Hooper go. making news this morning. That's shocking, <laughs> folks. You heard it. I believe, folks, that David Gurr, I think that's a first. <laughs> I, I would suggest. Yes. For what we've heard, I want to I want to I want to suggest that Dr. Hooper did not make a point forecast there or estimate, he or both. Uh, he suggested those would be the trends given this, that, and the other mm -hmm. thing. That's not the same. As an official, Mr. Cryan, don't let's be sure his badge still works, Mr. <laughs> Cryan. That's all we ask. Peter Hooper, thank you so much. Bringing Steve Whiting now. He is the chief global strategist at City Private Bank. Uh, a real pleasure to have him here. And I, I want to start with with the bond market, Steve. Uh, I, I look at the Fed minutes. I look at the Fed statements. I listened to Mario Draghi uh, a week and a half ago, and I wonder here how much uncertainty remains when it comes to, to monetary policy in light of, of what we have. I'm looking at WIRP here, the probability of a hike at, at you know the, the heels of this Fed meeting, 17.1 percent. How much uncertainty remains when it comes to central banks? Well, I think uh, they're coming into a path that sort of makes 
sense now for 2017. When you think about the period when interest rate hikes really became credible in 2014, the markets and the Fed were very far apart. The idea that they'll do one step now before the end of the year and two quarter point tightenings next year. And as Janet Yellen said at Jackson Hole, that this was the course if there is a shock-free outlook, um, that that is now sort of a reasonable course that we could be on, particularly with that qualification that um, if there are no outside shocks. You know, history is filled with them, and there have been Fed tightenings through those periods, and they couldn't control everything. But now um, I think that this is a path that where sort of the hawks and the doves uh, can both take that road together. And Steve, you're not you're not writing off a, a November rate rise completely, are you? You know, in my gut, I just can't completely do that. Um, the fact that they didn't even mention the weakness in the pervasive weakness in economic data in the month of August, uh, when uh, you know they followed up in September with a pause in three descents, uh, you know, for a Fed that is not political, just the absence of mentioning uh, any of the weak economic news, perhaps uh, so that it doesn't fall into a political context. It just strikes me that with um, so much information arguing for uh, a tightening that just deciding to wait to December, it's just hard to say that that it's entirely off the table. December obviously seems more likely, and the historical proclivity is for the Fed uh, not to tighten right ahead of political events. But um, I, I just note that one. Yeah, play this play this out for me a little bit here, because we've heard time and time again here they they, they won't raise rates because of the election. Uh, how could you see those two events interacting with, with, with one another? In other words, uh, if they were to raise rates in November, what, what, what measurable effect would that have on the campaign on the election as you see it? Well, the, the strongest argument is maybe not political. It's the fact that the Federal Reserve is not you know, trying to impose a harsh tightening, and markets are unprepared, have not priced in this event. So they likely uh, in, would likely desire not to have that outcome in the market, whereas in December, where it's entirely priced in, uh, they're going to have less impact. In many ways, the Fed has tried to tighten without impact uh, over you know, the last two years and said only one chance, and then take a look at what happened last December. In fact, historically, the Federal Reserve has tried to avoid December as a period of liquidity, year-end uncertainty. So they, they're just in a little bit of a can't-win situation here. But they have managed you know, to take down expectations so much for the course of future tightening uh, that they're, they're okay here one way or the other. Does inflation fade next year, Steve Whiting? I think inflation comes back just simply on the oil price rise. And, you know, depending on how the American economy performs and how willing the Federal Reserve is to go in a different direction from other central banks, it will dictate the path of the exchange rate and, you know, a meaningful dampening effect from goods prices. You know, we were on earlier. Uh, I don't think that you're going to see the kind of inflation with a life of its own where demand yeah, pulls it yeah. up year after year after yeah. year. It's going to be a, a bounce. Yeah, and I, I like that framework. Stephen Whiting with us, folks. And Stephen Whiting is an economist and a strategist, links in earnings and revenues and the dynamics of profitability of corporations into our greatest, uh, greater economy. Stephen, it will be a changed world if we get a villain bowder economy. And others that have frankly been more optimistic than Citigroup migrating towards a Citigroup level of GDP somewhere in the vicinity of 2.0%, some south, some north. Isn't that unacceptable to the animal spirit of the country? Isn't that unacceptable to develop corporate confidence? Look, I think one of the hard questions has to be when we 
have nearly 200,000 jobs created on average per month for seven years. You know, what in terms of headcount looks like a, you know, very significant tightening of labor markets, but output growth is slow. And so much is out of control of policymakers. You know, we can do things ideally to incentivize uh, labor force participation to get people looking at the incentives to work and go back. Um, when it comes to productivity growth, you know, the technology surprises uh, that we have seen, you know, for one in the fracking sector, in oil, where we had a couple of years back a dramatic uh, windfall in output, uh, you know, uh, a decade earlier uh, in IT. You know, these sorts of technology surprises are, are not something that I think <clears throat> policymakers can plan for. The yeah. striking thing about this, and I think it's actually a really good argument in favor of potential optimism, is that when you're down, you know, near early 1980s lows on, on this, and you see enough things going around in the technology front, we might actually, one of these days, we're not going to get just downside surprises and growths to cut to the chase. I mean, I, what, what's interesting to me, and help me here, uh, Stephen Whiting, and David Gura, jump in here as someone of wisdom <laughs> as well. I saw an Apple commercial this weekend, which is a bunch of, you know, millennials you want to punch. They're, you know, the whole Apple techie, gorgeous <laughs> thing. You want to punch all of them. But the basic idea is that technology of Apple using your iPhone to do cutesy pie selfies. That's productivity. Robotics, e-commerce. Um, you know, the fact that uh, the e-commerce sector is sort of displacing, you know, standard commerce with uh, a lot uh, less labor input. And people are uh, a little bit happy not uh, having, you know, massive amounts of speculative inventory across, you know, millions of square miles uh, across the United States, you know, where somebody might just walk in and happen to buy it. There is a technology like that, which is, in fact, disruptive. Uh, you know, these sorts of things where you have some resources uh, again, on the sidelines that you can redeploy. That's how, uh, you know, uh, real income rises per person. That, that reminded me of a very vivid moment from Stan Fisher's speech at the uh, the Economic Club of New York in which he's urged by a colleague to take a subway <laughs> ride to see everybody using <laughs> using their iPhones. I thought that was I thought that was just great. You know, we, we were talking with uh, Peter, Peter Hooper a few moments ago about uh, his take on Janet Yellen's speech at, at the, the Fed conference in Boston a little while back. And, mm -hmm. and so much of that conference had to do with productivity. Alan Kruger spoke there uh, as well. When you look at demographics, how much do you just you know raise up your hands in, in defeat here? How much can the Fed do? How much can anyone do about the, the demographic picture we're seeing in this country right now? Well, um, aging is not something we're going to do anything about. It's a it's a the the course of history and uh, where it will go. Uh, I think raising labor force participation for older workers uh, is ideal. Um, what's striking is in the last seven years, with the exception of the last twelve months. Um, you know, we were seeing labor force participation undershoot anything that demographics could explain. People between, you know, 25 and 55 uh, were not in the labor force uh, as, as they were predicted to be. Uh, it's been remarkably weak on that front. And, you know, for us to see in the last 12 months, 3 million people come back uh, and search for jobs is pretty striking. That's another big forecast miss, both uh, the shortfall and now the uh, improvement. Are there signs that the forecasting is getting better? We've talked a ton on this program just about the deficits of Fed forecasting. Uh, are there signs the that's improving? <laughs> sure, sure, the Fed and others. But, you know, how do we forecast better? Uh, information, uh, being able to uh, take 
real-time digital information on sales production in the economy, these sorts of things that uh, we probably don't fund very well. Uh, Improving these sorts of things can help. Um, You know, if people are looking for the answers to, like, how to make, you know, financial markets uh, less volatile, that's a different story. You know, we can – people will always try harder to get uh, some better forecast, and, uh, you know, it it becomes uh, a little bit like high-frequency trading. It's a a race for speed, but it won't necessarily improve Uh, everything. That's an important point. What is your confidence in your guesstimates of C plus I plus G plus NX, particularly after the first look we saw of third quarter? Do you have a a, a belief that you can game the adjustments of third quarter or the reality of this fourth quarter across consumption, investment, government, and exports? I think we can interpret it reasonably well, that the first half of the year – uh, had some shortfalls. We didn't believe growth would be just 1%. Mm. And so what's happened in the third quarter is a bit of a correction for that. Um, some of the contributions to growth are, you know, not looking so great as, of course, in the third quarter. But, you know, put that in the context of let's look back at the last couple quarters and it balances out uh, roughly where we think we are, which is um, certainly better than one, but probably not as good as 2.9. I want to ask you about energy. Uh, we see oil prices here. Uh, hovering below $50 a barrel. We, we had another OPEC meeting this weekend that came to no result other than them just agreeing they're going to continue right. talking about production cuts or production uh, freeze. Uh, how much is oil weighing on the markets right now? Um, only a little because sort of the absolute level of distress uh, that we were in around the beginning of the year was a variety of things. Petrodollar portfolio holders uh, in a state of distress selling assets outside of petroleum. Um, solvency becoming more of a, a broad question. The uncertainty of the oil price itself being so high. Uh, there were contracts to sell oil uh, and $15 that were sold uh, in January. And uh, so I, I think we can look at the last you know, two years uh, where investment spending to seek out uh, new oil, to uh, maintain the capital stock in oil, that, you know, this is the path forward for oil. It's not going to be about agreements between different actors, you know, gentlemen's agreements to, to do this or that. It's really going to be yeah. about high-cost producers simply not being there in the future. Steve Whiting, and, thank uh, you. that rebalances. Thank you so much, Stephen Whiting, uh, City Private uh, Bank as well. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Uh, It is a perfect time to speak with Stephen Lawrence Ratner. I urge you to peruse his Wikipedia over a most eclectic career with Willett Advisors, full disclosure, managing much of the assets of the former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, of course, a majority owner of this uh, station. Steve Ratner, I want to go back to original sin. (laughs) You were the leader of the presidential task force on the auto industry. You had laptops where you had to, you know, you had sensitive stuff on it. How in God's name did this happen? How did 
650 gajillion thousand emails. You're rounding up. What you're rounding up a little. Yeah, whatever. Get get <laughs> no, I think get it on was. Yeah. get on private computers. I don't get it. Off the clarity of a senior cabinet office. Well, first of all, the 650,000 emails were heavily Anthony, we think, assume, are heavily Anthony Weiner's right, emails agreed. rather than who's you know, right. Yeah. But but look, uh, they were they they broke the rules. Uh, they were conducting State Department business on private computers. Whether it's Anthony Weiner and Donald Trump is not completely wrong. Potentially, Anthony Weiner had access. Right. to State Department Did, information, whether it was classified or not, that he should not have had access in to. In the crush, you're sitting on the tarmac at LaGuardia. you got to get to Detroit to bail out the auto business. You, at times, you must have done this original sin, right? Well, let me say two things. First of all, we had, we did have, in my case, Treasury Department issued Blackberries and so on. So there was a way to communicate through the official system. That said, I think anyone who's worked in the government, particularly back then when the technology was not very robust, would tell you that a certain amount of government business does get done on personal devices. That is just the reality, as you say, of sitting on the tarmac mm -hmm. at LaGuardia. Uh, but in this case, all government business was done uh, off of the government server, and that's, I think, a different kettle of fish in all fairness to everybody. What I'm going to say next is by no means trying to excuse anything that, that happened here, but when I was reporting in Washington, it was not uncommon for me to talk to government officials who complained about the updatedness, the quality of the technology they were using. Stepping aside from the, the politics of, of this whole matter, what does it say about our government's uh, ability to control data or to, to have systems in place that uh, work seamlessly so that we can transfer information where it's appropriate from one person to the other? It says that our government, not su totally surprisingly, is behind the curve uh, with respect to technology and implementing it. The, the systems, at least we had back then, as you suggest, uh, for operating within the total confines of, of the Treasury, in, the, in my case, were incredibly uh, difficult and incredibly ornery. But all that said, I would also say, and this is not in any way a reference to, to Mrs. Clinton or Huma Abedin, there were some government officials that I'm aware of who would uh, conduct some government business on personal devices, particularly to keep it from being captured within the government email uh, uh, complex and therefore potentially subject to FOIA or other disclosure. And so we can argue about that uh, appropriate, but that did go on. What's the, the legacy going to be here of the, the WikiLeaks side of things? I think back to just last week, uh, a new slew of emails came out. Anne-Marie Slaughter, formerly of the State Department's Policy Planning Office, uh, you know, saying that she and others did this quite regularly. <laughs> I can imagine this instills some fear in those who have worked in Washington, who work in Washington, about what's going to happen with the emails that they've sent. Uh, well, I think I think there's comfort in numbers, and yeah. I think there's so many people who did take some liberties with the system, whether it was for convenience or privacy or whatever, that you're not going to go and prosecute you know, 5,000 former government officials. So I think I think they're pretty safe. I think that I assume that starting whenever the, you want to date it from when this began, was uh, nobody anymore is now operating off of the government, you know, in any way deviating from the government rules. And so at least we know we've accomplished that out of all this. What's your sense of the, the, the politics here uh, with, you know, so few days until the election, the timing of this? Obviously, this is still being debated and, and, and learned about. Uh, does it smell of something to you? No. You mean in terms of, of when this, this being a political? And, and, and no, 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 no. I, look, I, I think that Comey is – the FBI Comey, director Comey is in a very tough place. I think you can question his – you can question and debate his decisions, but I, I think he's within the fairway in terms of having – 
uh, done the best he could well, under a very set, difficult set of circumstances. That, that is a brilliant statement. That's the smartest thing I've heard on all this in the last 72 hours. Within the fairway mm. captures the squishiness. Of this. It, it makes foolish the certitude that we're hearing from both sides, I doesn't think, it? Yeah, I think the certitude from both sides is not correct. I think that... Uh, I, 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 I agreed with Comey's decision back in July to explain why he wasn't prosecuting Mrs. Clinton because it was such a political situation. He then went and testified in front of Congress and promised them that if anything else came out, he would tell them. Then he, they learn about this uh, uh, Anthony Weiner laptop. And then he says to himself, well, do I tell people or do I wait? If he waits and after the election, it turns out he knew 11 days before the election that there were 650,000 right. other emails, he will get crucified by the uh, Republicans. He brings it out now. He's being crucified by the Democrats. So it is kind of an, it is a kind of equal opportunity uh, crucif crucifixion that's going right. on of him. And I think he kind of did what he had to do under the circumstances he was faced with. Steve, I tried to do a balanced approach. I had uh, comments from Attorney General Holder and from Attorney General McCasey uh, this morning. Mr. McCasey, representing uh, public service with George Bush, uh, Emphasize the need for grand juries. Does President Clinton move beyond a grand jury if she is president? Uh, let me put it, it this way. I, I'm, not an, I'm not an expert on grand juries, but let me put it this way. I think one thing that none of us should be happy about, regardless of our politics, is that if she is elected, and I think she still will be, notwithstanding uh, recent events, she is going to be faced with a continuing onslaught of investigations, some of them honorable in a sense of being by the FBI or whatever, some of them perhaps political from uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill. And that is a very depressing thing to me as an American that we're going to start a presidency with the president under investigation. Depressing. How, how difficult does it make it to govern? There are many, so, already so many hurdles to governing in Washington with the kind of divisions we've seen here. Being under that suspicion investigation, call it what you will, how hard will it make it for a President Clinton should she be elected to, to govern? It is, one more, it is one more log on the fire in difficultness of governing. She's already going to be faced almost certainly with divided government. She's going to be faced with being elected with not, the, not a great approval rating from the country. And then you add this on top of it, an ongoing series of investigations. And as I said, as an American, you should be depressed. I've got to ask you the news question just to clear the air. Have you been asked to provide public service to a Clinton administration? No, and I, and I wouldn't. I'm very happy managing all of Mayor Bloomberg's philanthropic uh, assets, <laughs> but I don't think they've though. asked. I don't think they've asked anybody at this point. I'm just They're, trying to get yeah. it out there to get the. You can get, get it out there. You can ask the question. But Vice the President is no. Biden vetted to be Secretary of State. Does he have the that. energy to be a Secretary of State? He would be a great Secretary of State, but he said that he won't take the job, yeah. so I think that's yeah. now off the table. That's where your name came up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Me and Joe Biden Steven. are just like two, two peas in a pod in terms Steven of our experience. Rathers, thank you so much. <laughs> Will and Advisors with perspective, and we're trying for us. We're killing ourselves trying to be balanced, honest. What an uproar this week, and I shout out again, Chuck Todd on Bloomberg Radio. Sunday afternoons with his wonderful Meet the Press. David Gura, Meet the Press, killed it. Yesterday, At the yes. opening yesterday, going back to Secretary Kissinger announcing the war was over 42 hours or whatever before the election. Chuck Todd did it. Stephen, you I want to comment that. on that? No, I saw that. It was great. And then the other uh, example of uh, George Bush and the, D and the DUI coming out four or five days before the election <laughs> in 2000. And so we have been here before, and we will get through it. And, well, I don't know. we got eight more days to go. Who knows what could happen in eight days. Uh, Steve Ratner, thank you so much. 
Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura here with Tom Keane on Halloween. Excuse me, I'm so rattled I forgot to hit the red button. The advance of J.K. Rowling was 2,500 pounds. I've got a working statistic of a Harry Potter thing of $15 billion is what it's worth. I, I just want you to know that for Halloween, the Keene household spent about $13.3 billion wow. of the $15 billion. Like, I, I don't get it. I mean, I, I, I got to get smarter on Harry Potter. It's completely overtaken. Uh, well, you, the manse. You've got your Neo Fisherian double faced mask. I am. I'm, I'm going as Irving Fisher, <laughs> and then on the backside, I'm going as Vice Chairman Fisher. It's, it was a special custom, you know, like uh, yeah. rubber, I, I don't have know, that specially latex. Exactly. <laughs> latex thing. We. Uh, what are you doing? Well, so my daughter is going to go as a peacock. She's, uh, she's Very young good. enough that she's, you know, there's no, no Harry Potter yet on, on mm-hmm. the but. Um, yeah, we'll yeah. be roaming around Park Slope. Uh, the the yeah. mayor, the <clears throat> current mayor of the city, a, a Park Slope resident, at least part-time, he often leads the, the parade that we'll have down yeah. 7th Ave, so keep an eye out. Doug Cass is going as Ernie Banks yeah. <laughs> with Seabreeze Partners. Doug, I mean, a little bit on baseball here. This is fun, isn't it? Well, we, while we wait for that, I've got an email here from Doug. I opened it up here. It has an image attached. It is Doug wearing a Cubs baseball hat. <laughs> hey, Optimism continues here. Sunshine, fresh air. <laughs> Teams behind us. Let's play two. I, I mean, what? Give us your takeaway of the excitement at Wrigley Field. I mean, Bill, uh, uh, Bill, Bill uh, uh, Murray got all the. I, you know, I almost, oh, I love, I loved his rendition of yeah. "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." <laughs> um, listen, I, I uh, one of my closest friends, George Siegel, is in Chicago, and uh, he went to the game. I almost went to Chicago yesterday, yeah. and I was going to go to Sluggers. <clears throat> But but you know how much the cover charges? Uh, yeah, I'm afraid to ask. Yeah. $1,250. Wow. Yeah, just to get in. Now, for those that don't know, Sluggers is, a, is, a, is, right. is outside of Wrigley Field. It's a local bar. It's a well-known uh, hamburger joint, yeah. you know, that you can have dinner for, for $15 at. Yeah. Doug, explain to our global audience how Wrigley Field and the Chicago Cubs experience is different from Fenway Park, is different from Dallas Cowboy football, is different <laughs> from Manchester United. Oh, it's so it's so his, historic with the ivy, with the vines growing and the outfield. Um, I, I know every time I've gone to Wrigley Field, um, uh, the um, uh, of course, I'll never, by the way, just to digress a second, I'll never forget the the best uh, pitching duel in the history of baseball, as you remember, was with my, my cousin Sandy and uh, the Chicago Cubs when uh, Sandy threw a pitch hitter, uh, a, a, no, a perfect game, excuse me, in September 9th, 1965, I think it was, against Bob Henley, who was a journeyman mm-hmm. um, a pitcher for the Cubs who just came out of the minor mm-hmm. leagues. Uh, but it's so beautiful, and every time I've gone to Wrigley Field, they uh, play take me out to the ball game before the first inning, and they have a parent with a child play catch in center right. field. I mean, what is better? Than that. Uh, Doug Cass, you have written uh, often about peak sports viewership in media companies. We have not yet had your comments on telephone in Time Warner. I love what you say about everybody trying to copy the giant Chris Berman over at ESPN or arguably helped invent the modern enthusiasm. Why are we at peak sports viewership? Yeah, I, th- I thought for some time I've been writing on the, on the street.com uh, since June of 2015 and one of my largest short positions, which is a secular short investment position, has been Disney. It's done well. It's gone from 116 to about 94. 
Um, you know, if we go back to 2005 when I established this, 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 this peak sports viewership thesis, the NCAA semifinal college bowl series showed a 33% decline in ratings, viewership on, at the, uh, I know you enjoy hockey, at the NHL's winter classic dropped by 25% uh, in 2015 versus 2014. Ratings for the college football's national championships subsequently declined by almost 20%. Uh, we have a number of factors, I think, in terms of explaining this. Firstly, we have oversaturation of product. Secondly, we have what you just described as these asinine commentators who all want to be um, and mimic uh, ESPN's Chris Berman. There's only one Chris Berman. Uh, it's gotten annoying. Thirdly, the quality of play um, has arguably eroded with uh, parity. Um, fourthly, there's poor refereeing and a lack of uh, league discipline, you know, a lot of, especially in the NFL, uh, where a number of players are socially off the, re off the reservation. Um, we have unsavory player behavior on and off the field, in other words. Yeah. Um, and there are numerous viewing alternatives. There's market segmentation. Mm. Uh, we are in a social media-driven world. There's so much time each day for yeah. sports TV. And I just noticed that Nielsen came out on Friday that ESPN lost 625,000 yeah. subscribers in the month of October, which yeah. is astonishing. David, I would suggest also that Doug doesn't mention is people are exhausted by ads. It's just there's a generational shift. David, Jump in here. Yeah, a piece here I noticed in, in Business Week a few weeks back, looking at viewership of NFL primetime gains dropping 14% from a year earlier. You say it's a secular trend here. I know a lot of people have attributed just to the to the news cycle and, and to the election. You, you do think it's greater than that? Uh, it's much greater because it began uh, in early, well, actually late 2014 and coincident with cord cutting among cable TV customers. Um, yeah, I think this is this is um, David. This has been in place for nearly two years now. You so I think it's it's a trend. You and mentioned Disney, and I, I got to ask you about the the complementarity there with with Twitter. Is is Twitter something that you think Disney should be taking a look at? It's. I don't think it's Iger's um, uh, nature to buy um, buy a company like that. It's terribly diluted. Disney has its own problems right now, David. Um, its earnings estimates are falling like a rock, and I don't think they'll even meet the downgraded expectations. Hmm. I, uh, I noted here in your most recent note, you've talked about history and talked about the, the difficulties of, of looking back, uh, given the environment we're in right now, with central banks and, and, and quant strategies and whatnot. You, that'll continue? That'll persist? Yeah, I was talking this morning um, on my blog about um, the unusual investing backdrop and that we have these these basically three influences, David. We have this this dirty water of central banking liquidity and zero or negative interest rates. We have the dominance of quant strategies like um, risk parity and volatility trending strategies who are agnostic to private market value, income statements, and balance sheets. And then we have this proliferation of uh, passive investing through exchange-traded funds, and they've all upended the benefits of those like myself and I think Tom who are inclined to look to the past for a picture of the future. Mm. Douglas Cass with his Seabreeze. Doug, you put out a note the other day which had in a lot of uh, different companies. I think the great mystery is Amazon. Uh, with, with the effort in cloud, they've been on a trajectory, then they get hit a little bit. Wither Douglas Cass on uh, Mr. Bezos and Amazon. 
I took a, a basically what I described as a trading short rental in the stock the day before earnings were released, and I did it so uh, for two basic reasons. Number one, it appeared that just technically the stock was making a double top uh, at 850, so I'd a, I had a, a, a tight stop in my short position. It was meant to be a trade, not, as, not mm-hmm. an investment short the way Disney is. The second more important factor from a fundamental standpoint, retail is in disarray. I mean, the retail stock index just makes new lows day after day after day, and I didn't believe that Amazon would be immune to the retail carnage as we moved into the holiday season and improved out well. And the stock went down um, from the top uh, by 75 right. points, at which time I covered the short and it was one of my better shorts of the year. What is your tone three or five years out? Is it like Gartman where the, we're going from the lower left to the upper right? Or could you be more nuanced than the gentleman from I, North I, Carolina? You know, um, back in – I'm a bit of a student of Warren Buffett, as you know. And back in 1999 in his a chairman's letter to Berkshire shareholders, he was quoted as saying, to the extent – uh, Charlie and I have been successful. It's because we concentrated on identifying one-foot hurdles that we could step over rather than because we acquired any ability to clear seven-foot hurdles. And I think the market is now a seven-foot hurdle. Um, the S&P uh, 500 index is expensive on nearly all valuation metrics. I look at eight of them, enterprise value to sales, enterprise value to EBITDA, P.E. to growth, which is the peg rate, uh, forward P.E., cash flow yields, cyclically adjusted P.E., price to book, and free cash flow yields. And the aggregate index is at the 83rd percentile. However, Tom, if you look at the median stock, it's at the 95th percentile. This, to me, is a seven-foot hurdle. And so I want to be risk-averse in a period of uh, gross uncertainty. You mentioned that uncertainty, looking ahead here to the election, just a week away. Uh, what do you think? What effect is that going to have on volatility? Do you think, and how are you covering yourself there? Well, my baseline expectation, Dave, um, is in looking at PredictWise and ElectionOdds.com and the London betting parlors. Um, my baseline expectation is that um, Clinton will win the White House, that the Democrats will regain the Senate. And um, the House will be uh, maintained by the Republican Party. And my concern is that my concern actually is either a Trump or a Clinton victory will be market unfriendly. And the reason I say that is because it's very important that we have a successful policy baton pass from monetary policy, which has uh, introduced massive amount of liquidity and zero interest rates in this country to a thoughtful, economically growth-catalyzing fiscal policy. And I'm afraid that not only are the parties fractured between themselves, but within the parties they're fractured. What what are the odds that you're placing here on on a big fiscal package, on on that fiscal policy that that you mentioned? And I wonder what the the implications of of, of that are very low. Vis-a-vis census. Um, You know, my basic expectation... I look at my bad case on the market is I see uh, Treasury yield rise, the 10-year rising to around 2.5% next year, and that the yield gap narrows slightly to about 400 basis points. That produces an earnings yield of 6.5% or a PE of of about 15.5 times. 
and you apply that P.E. multiple to my estimate of around $123 of S&P earnings, and I come out with an S&P of 1900 which is you know, roughly 12% below where it is today. A few minutes ago, I asked Steve Whiting the degree to which there's there's uncertainty surrounding what central banks are doing right now. For you, for somebody who, who, who looks at technicals, looks at history, uh, when you look at, at what the central banks are doing, how sure are you of, of the path they're on right now? Well, I think they're they're tra- they're trapped they're trapped um, in a in what is appearing to be a Larry Summers um, secular stagnation scenario, and the problem I have is that the effectiveness, David, of monetary policy both domestically and around the world uh, is losing its effectiveness. So we're we are mm. really super reliant on phys- on an effective, um, as I said, baton path to fiscal policy, and I don't see it happening uh, in this country. Doug Cass, less than one minute. How do we speed up baseball? I mean, you know, it's like an important issue. How do we speed up the game of baseball? Or are we nuts? Well, it's a question being asked in a number of sports. You know, I played two rounds of golf this weekend. It's the same problem with golf. Um, uh, it's a real problem, as I said in my in our yeah. discussion of sports viewers, peaking sports viewership. People have just so much time in the day, and social media is taking yeah. a larger yeah. proportion of our time. And I don't think I don't think the grand old game is going to be changed in our lifetime, Tom. Okay, Doug Kiss, thanks so much. Brilliant, inspired, Doug, that you're going as Dennis Gartman for Halloween. I think that's just absolutely. <laughs> I love Denny. Just absolutely I I brilliant. His, I wish I had his golf game. Right, well, we all wish we had his. He's on the course like 80 hours a week or <laughs> yeah. whatever. I Doug Kiss. I think probably. <laughs> and, and the county around it. Doug Kiss, thank you so much for Seabreeze Partners. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.